Hello, I'm Rachel Borthwick, and welcome back to Out of the Closet and Into the Pews. Over our last couple of episodes, we've spoken with scholars to discuss what it really means to study religion queerly, and what liberation really means to queer communities. However, in tracing the historical analysis of queer religious liberation, we want to ask members of religious communities how religious spaces that focus on queer religion challenge us to rethink the relationship between LGBTQ plus emancipation, queer rights, and religious forms, and thereby come to understand religious resistance and negotiation as enactments of queer identity. Those of us who are queer people of faith experience multiplicity all the time. We belong to multiple communities, queer, religious, spiritual, but yet we are often asked to choose one over the other. Am I queer today, and if so, do I downplay my religion and spirituality, or am I religious today, and therefore downplay my queerness? Those of us who are queer and religious seem to live and exist in a third space that is created by the intersections of our sexualities and our religious identity. As queer religious people, many of us never feel at home, but many of us also find this solace in our religion. Whether it is the narrative about the ancient Israelites wandering for 40 years, Jesus's vagina, or living in Babylon after the destruction of the first temple, we feel a deep connection. When we think of multiplicity, the gay flag or rainbow speaks to queer religious people. Religious and queer identities are often seen as competing, rather than both sailing identities in a person's sense of self. Today we want to ask, what it would it mean if queer religious people did not have to downplay their queerness or religion in religious or queer spaces? Today, to help me with this conversation is Associate Pastor Ian McPherson. Ian McPherson is from North Carolina and is a graduate of Campbell University, St. Louis University, and Union Theological Seminary in the city of New York. Ian is a passionate advocate for youth leadership, both in the church and in Christianity's moral witness to the world. Their ministry puts faith and civic formation in conversation to amplify the theoethical wisdom of young people. Ian, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Rachel. Glad to be here. I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about your story. How did you come to your faith, spirituality, or religion? What faith-based communities did you grow up around? Oh, sure. I grew up actually in the charismatic tradition, which is a, an offshoot of Pentecostalism. And so I grew up in a quasi-Pentecostal evangelical tradition at a non-denominational church where my father was the associate pastor for uh the vast majority of my, of my childhood uh, into early adulthood. And so I was pretty predisposed to religion from an early age. Uh, I was definitely, um, you know, raised in a religious home and uh, most of my family is pretty religious. Uh, as a matter of fact, my father um, came to the charismatic tradition through the ministry of my mother's parents and so I'm actually the, the child and grandchild of charismatic uh, ministers. And um, so I was uh, raised in, in that tradition and still cling to, to much of it in practice and to some degree in theology. But there's a, a much longer story here. But the short version is that as I came to reckon with my queer identity, and um, began to understand the more progressive 
theological strands within the Christian tradition, I gravitated in time. Uh, I took a detour through Unitarian Universalism, um, but in time found the United Church of Christ was a place that I felt that I could be most at home in the fullness of who I am, both as a queer person and as a charismatic. And so even though I serve a mainline church uh, where the, the worship is not anything remotely close to how I grew up, there are other churches within my denomination that embrace Pentecostal identity and still maintain connection to other churches within the United Church of Christ. And so that became the place where I felt that I can embrace myself most fully. And so that's why I'm here. Yeah. And I'm kind of wondering, you know, what guides your activism or what does it mean to you to study religion queerly? Well, that's a great question. I think that there was a a really significant shift for me over the years from an obsession with personal salvation, which was the, the message of the charismatic and evangelical upbringing that I had, to one of liberation um, and over time studying uh, with, uh, you know, I was fortunate enough to study with the founder of Black Liberation Theology, Dr. James Cone, uh, at Union Theological Seminary uh, before his passing. And so it was teachers like Dr. Cone and uh, also uh, other uh, folks who root themselves within that liberationist tradition who really gave me new language for the kind of of impact that I thought that faith should have on the world. And in time, my commitments really shifted from this narrative of personal salvation, individual salvation, to really using faith as a lens to understand uh, systems and structures that keep people in bondage, uh, that uh, create inequitable outcomes for folks, and that don't ultimately uh, regard every human life with the dignity that I believe that it deserves and that it's been given by God. And so queering faith for me is just one of the many liberative lenses that we can use to understand the ways that oppressive systems and structures are perpetuated in our society, not only not only within our society, secularly speaking, but within the church itself. Um, And so my faith is ultimately informed by that commitment to to liberation, uh, not just for me, uh, but liberation for all. Yeah, Ian, and you talked about using faith as a lens to, you know, examine systems and different parts in secular and religious society. I'm wondering if we can talk a little bit about spiritual fragmentation among queer folks And what I really mean by this is that more than often, queer folks feel this painful and frightening feeling of their new sense of identity, whether that be religious or spiritual, crumble and fall away as they navigate their sexual identity. Did you navigate this phenomenon or do you have any advice to those navigating these feelings as an associate pastor? Absolutely. That's a great question. I would say I I would tackle that a couple of different ways. My particular experience, I think, is unique in that, in many ways, I think that I found my queerness through spirituality and theology. Um, You know, 
it wasn't until I encountered queer theology that I really began to delve into queer theory and and also just hung around queer people, which is actually the most formative um, part of this process for me was the community that I built throughout this, this navigating of who I was. The categories that were given, offered to me, you know, growing up were gay and straight and uh, male and female, and, and neither of those really felt um, most resonant with who I was on, on a deep, on, you know, in the deepest sense. And um, so I am really grateful for the work and witness of queer theologians uh, and queer activists within Christian community because they uh, gave me language for myself and for the divine and for the experience that I was, and for my, uh, you know, spiritual experience, but also my uh, ethical commitments as a Christian uh, and really gave me uh, solid ground to reroute myself within that tradition fully. Um, so that's, you know, my personal experience. However, I understand that for many uh, queer folks that the church as a whole represents uh, harm and pain and trauma. And uh, far be it from me to ever offer a, a word to them that would in any way diminish their experience. You know, many folks come to me who grew up queer uh, and religious and have completely rejected their faith. Uh, and I think that there's some anxiety when they encounter me, especially like if I'm wearing my collar, you know, it's like that uh, I'm here to, to kind of proselytize or something. But I actually have um, in some ways uh, I, I want to be careful in the way that I say this because I am, by definition, an institutionalist. I'm within the institution, and I have to take responsibility for that. But I'm not an institutionalist to the extent that I am committed to bringing queer people into the church. My work is to change the church so that it uh it will meet queer people where they are and offer a, a liberating and good word um, that, uh, that a church that would bring good news. And so I can say this, uh, you know, uh, full-throatedly, I guess, uh, because having grown up charismatic, this is really the gift of that tradition, is that I'm not particularly tied to these institutions as they exist. I really am concerned, I'm most concerned with the spirit, which is always and ever at least one step ahead of the institutions that claim to follow her. And so um, my commitment really is to, you know, the liberation of queer folks, to the healing of, of their trauma, to the restructuring of a society that will mitigate, if not eliminate, those oppressive and traumatic uh, experiences that so many of my my queer siblings carry. And I'm much more committed to that and, and to the spirit that I believe informs that work for me uh, more than I am the church itself as an institution. You know, these are always and ever, uh, as the scripture would say, clay jars that carry uh, a, a precious treasure. 
And, you know, the queer people are the treasure. Uh, the, the church is just a clay jar and it can be and will be, and I think is currently being reformed and restructured and reorganized. Um, but there is something more precious uh, within churches and, and within society that I think we should be attentive to. I, I think that's the work of the spirit and that's where Jesus would call us as well. You noted that you have, you know, this unique experience, and I'm wondering if I could get your opinion on this assumption. In our society, there's this assumption today that queer religious individuals are involved in a different realm as queer folk and as social justice activists, and either have to downplay their religion and spirituality or their queerness, depending on their environments that they are in. What do you make of that assumption? Oh, that's a, that's a great question. You know, I, I think that for so many of my, because of my particular formation, having gone to Union Theological Seminary and, and being in um, a denomination that has embraced LGBTQ folks for, for quite some time, you know, my formation uh, means that I really have encountered many people who embody these multiple identities as religious and queer. And so, it's become so normalized, I think, in my own experience that I may not, you know, my particular experience may not speak to, to everyone who's listening to this podcast, but I would say that it is possible to embody one's queerness uh, and also to be faithful um, and even connected to an organized religion. I will say that you know, threading the two together is often challenging. You know, even within a, a denomination like mine, you know, we, we have uh, a movement called open and affirming. You know, there are other terminologies within other traditions like reconciling or something like that. But basically that's the designation that churches undertake when they become affirming of LGBTQ folks. And there's a process uh, congregationally uh, within my tradition that we we take on. And so my church at United Church of Chapel Hill has been affirming since the early 90s, which was quite a feat, I think, for a, you know, for a church in, in North Carolina at that time. But I think that sometimes we become victims of our own success. You know, we, we often think for those, uh, and by we, I mean the churches that are designated as open and affirming in the United Church of Christ. I think that sometimes we can rest on our laurels and thinking that, you know, we have somehow, because of our open and affirming stance, because now gay marriage is the law of the land, that we have uh, somehow kind of accomplished queer liberation <laughs> um, and we can, you know, move on to other things. And so it's a I have problems with the language itself, right? That the church becomes open and affirming. It, it centers the church as the, and the, and the church's, it privileges that the, the, the church uh, as an institution that somehow holds the holy and the sacred and that we're opening ourselves as the holders of the holy and the sacred to queer folks who need us to come find the holy. So, you know, I, I really try to challenge that language and to expand our understanding of not only what queer liberation means politically, because it's much more than gay marriage, um, you know, and, and also spiritually for us to really reconsider 
our position in this story? Are we the holders of the sacred as the church, as the institution? Or are we, rather than, than being open to someone else coming to find the holy within us or affirming someone else, you know, I think that there's a lot of, of work that needs to be done in terms of confession and redemption and reconciliation within the church. And so that requires a great deal of humility. But at the same time, you know, I think that the church really should be itself searching for outside of itself where the spirit may be leading us, you know, where, how others, particularly queer folks in this instance, are holding the holy and the sacred. You know, the, the final judgment scene that Christ gives in Matthew 25 is just a really clear example of the ways that Christ points us away from, I think, the, the theological questions that often animate religious community, you know, especially when it comes to things like, like in my own experience, personal salvation and what's the, you know, what's the afterlife look like and how can I make sure that I get into heaven and that sort of thing. Christ points us away from those questions to the least of these, uh, you know, draws our attention, our central, I think, theological and ethical uh, and civic consideration should be finding the divine, finding Christ in the least of these among us, um, that Jesus calls his family. And so, you know, I would love to see a church that is more open to understanding anew, recommitting itself anew to this project of queer liberation. And that by understanding that our liberation is bound up with each other, um, that, you know, the church itself is in need of liberating, you know, and, and hopefully, you know, our understanding of, uh, of sexuality and gender and family structures and, you know, all of these, uh, the economy, I mean, all of these things that are part and parcel with, with queerness, um, about which queerness has something to say, has good news to bring, I would love the church to be much more attentive to, to that in the, in the years ahead. So that's all to say, it is challenging to thread that needle sometimes. And I think that, you know, the, these institutions, uh, even the more quote unquote progressive ones can sometimes be limiting theologically and, and ethically. Um, our moral imaginations are surprisingly limited if we're not attentive to the least of these in society, and if we're not attentive to where the spirit may be leading us outside of these institutions. Yeah, and I want to, I want to take it back to you, and you talked a little bit about, you know, your unique experience. I'm wondering what religious or, you know, spiritual factors do you feel helped shape your queer identity? I think that, again, the gift of the charismatic tradition, I have to go back to that, because it really is the sort of the headwaters, the, the wellspring of, of, my, of my formation. You know, the, the ways in that I carried myself as a child, you know, even my, the ways that I was embodied long before, you know, I even understood my own sexuality in a more complex way, 
my gender expression was was pretty queer. And the beautiful thing about the charismatic tradition and its attentiveness to the spirit and the ways that the spirit is uh, takes possession almost of one's body, sort of the embodied nature of that, it really gave me a lot of latitude that I would not have had even if I had, you know, gone to uh, the Southern Baptist Church that my father attended as a child. Um, there was something about the subversiveness of the spirit in that space that gave me wide latitude in terms of my gender expression, um, in terms of the sort of uh, ways that I could emote, um, the affect that I had. I mean, all of those things were were very, were very queer looking back, but in spite of itself, because I certainly did not grow up in, a, in an affirming tradition by any stretch of the imagination, but in spite of itself, the commitment to the spirit that this community had uh, actually introduced me to this subversive uh, divine figure of the spirit who really shielded and I think protected this little queer person um, from some of the worst potentially damaging you know consequences of growing up within an institution that was not open and affirming and so you know I credit the charismatic tradition with that with giving me permission to be my fullest self even though I don't think they would affirm that or would even agree with my assessment of my own experience, but I know the spirit um, and I've known the spirit for a long time. Uh, and the spirit has a subversive way of moving within these institutions, even as I think that she calls us beyond the limitations that the institutions may want to impose on us. You talked a little bit about, you know, growing up maybe in a religious environment that didn't accept you. I'm wondering, have you seen any improvements in religious and spiritual education, educational resources that incorporate queerness um, in your own work or outside of that? Well, this is a this is a challenge. You know, most of I, I am with within my role at United Church of Chapel Hill, I have direct responsibility for our youth ministry programs finding curricula and other resources for youth ministry that are affirming of queer folks or informed by queer theology. I mean, it's, it's really a challenge still. It's getting better and there are more resources that are emerging, but by and large that market is dominated by evangelical theologies. And so, you know, I would love to see not just queer theology, but other theologies of liberation be embraced within faith formation curricula across the, the lifespan. And I think that that's a real gap uh, within the institution of the church. I mean, you know, you can, you can go and pick up a, the queer Bible commentary, but good luck reading it without, you know, a theology or philosophy degree. 
we have to be better, I think, and by we, I mean churches that embrace, you know, queer folks. We have to be better about clarifying who we are, what our commitments are, why we're doing what we're doing, and making it plain. You know, the scripture says, write the vision, make it plain so that a runner could see it, and, you know, whizzing past, I suppose. And so we have to to really work on that as a uh, as a progressive faith community. Um, and I don't think, I, I mean, I think that I think that one of the temptations is that we give up on biblical literacy for the sake of becoming more approachable or less controversial. But I think that, you know, we really give up on a lot of the treasure of our faith tradition when we don't examine deeply the roots of our, of our tradition and of the biblical tradition, we don't form our ethics in spite of scripture. We inform, our ethics are informed by scripture. And so, you know, I would love to see more biblically rich, uh, theologically expansive curricula for children and youth in particular that is committed to, to liberation and that is informed by queer voices and voices of color. You talked a little bit about scripture. I'm wondering on more of a positive light, when you came to you know, reckon or come into your queer identity, what is some scripture that really inspired you? Yeah, I will say that scripture was the hardest part for me. One of the interesting things about the charismatic tradition is that despite its commitment to the ever-present movement of the Spirit um, and the, the gifts that the Spirit bestows upon the faithful, um, that's actually the root of that word, charismatic. It means gifts, um, and in this case, it means the gifts of the Spirit. And so uh, we believed, you know, that folks could prophesy, you know, that they could, that they could in fact hear from and and speak for God. And it's interesting that as seemingly imminent and like relevant that that, you know, and, and as somewhat progressive in some ways as that might be, um, you know, the Pentecostal tradition was multiracial in its founding, um, you know, empowered women to be to be ministers. And of course, that's a fraught history, and it's not, you know, it's not totally liberative for sure. And some of that gets rolled back over time. But that tradition, you know, as much as there was a commitment to a much more inclusive understanding of the ways that the Spirit moved here and now, there, it, there was also an infusion of fundamentalism in its approach to scripture. And so it actually had quite, you know, strict and static rules and understandings of the ways that scripture inspired the faithful. And so it was really hard for me that, you know, the, there was one sort of tone of voice with which I would approach scripture. And it took a long time for me to, to find a new voice uh, and actually many voices because the scripture itself is not univocal and was never intended to be. 
And so um, it took a long time for me to, to kind of gain enough perspective and expansiveness within myself to, to be able to hear the scripture anew and to really hear it as good news for me. But I will say that some of the passages I think that have been most impactful for me are even actually come from Paul uh, and Paul's writings. Paul is not, you know, typically queer theologians first go to scripturally speaking, but you know, there was a side of, of Paul that we see in the book of Galatians um, where he says, you know, in Christ there is neither male nor female. Um, I think that there is a kind of liberative understanding. Not only does he say male or female, he says uh, Jew nor Greek, uh, enslaved nor free, meaning that, you know, the systems and structures of oppression that define our experience so much of the time are not the intention of the divine and in fact can be shattered in Christ, you know, in Christ Jesus, we can find liberation from these oppressive structures. For me today, reading that, that male-female binary is one of the oppressive structures through Christ, and, and through Christ I have found liberation, I think, from that. And in that same vein, when we think about the Gospels, um, you know, I've already mentioned Matthew 25, of course, is a a really important ethical grounding for me. There's a, a lot of conversation in our country now about sort of finding common ground or the common good, uh, which I think is, is great that we can redefine, you know, reclaim the common good as a robust civic virtue. But if Christ's witness defines that for us, then the good that is common to all of us is that which is good for the least among us. And so, you know, my attention is always going to be uh, ethically and, and theologically um, is going to be defined by Matthew 25. And I think that that's consistent with the way that Christ identifies his mission in Luke chapter four, where he says, you know, the spirit of the Lord has come upon me. He's quoting Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord has come upon me to bring good news to the poor proclaim release to the captives, to, you know, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, uh, which is a, a material redistribution of, of wealth and resources within the ancient Hebrew scripture. And so, you know, I think of Christ as a radical, radical meaning that he gets to the root, uh, quite literally, of, of the structures in society that, that tear us apart from one another, that bifurcate us, that create exploitative systems that ultimately do not recognize the belovedness of God's creation in the way that God intended. And so, you know, Christ, uh, and by the way, you know, when, when Jesus says, I've come to bring good news, that good news, the euangelion, that is the, the root of the word evangelical. And so uh, Jim Wallace likes to say this, the founder of Sojourners, but you know, if you're talking about evangelicalism 
and the good news that you're talking about is not good news for poor people. It is not Christ's good news, and that's just all there is to it. So I think that Christ is is a liberator and, you know, that Jesus began a movement 2,000 years ago um, that I see myself a part of today. And so those are kind of the scripture, the, some of the scriptures, I think, that that root me. Oh, and I should also say, of course, that, you know, the same spirit that Jesus says empowered him was the same that Isaiah said empowered him. And that, you know, so Jesus roots himself in the prophetic tradition, but that spirit is the same one that descends on the on the believers at Pentecost, on Pentecost. And so, you know, that same spirit, and this is again, going back to my charismatic commitments, but that same spirit that took up residence in Jesus is the same one that takes residence within my heart today and that animates and empowers and informs uh, what I do and the way that I've moved through the world. And so that spirit is not uh, just from some past, you know, 2,000 years ago or beyond, you know, with the prophets that came before Jesus. Jesus is, is literally, you know, drawing a line from Isaiah to him. And then in the, the sequel, of course, to Luke's gospel in the book of Acts, we see that spirit moving on the early disciples and uh, that same spirit continues to animate us today. And you already mentioned what my next question was going to be a little bit, but I was really struck by your piece, Seeking the Common Good in Uncommon Time. I'm wondering, can you talk a little bit about some tensions you've navigated as a queer person of faith or, you know, just like a little bit about that article for maybe some people who've not read it? Yeah, that, you know, that was a difficult piece to write and I think has become more difficult, maybe rather than less, uh, as time goes on. You know, I I was skeptical about that piece and sort of the, what was being asked of me. I was approached by the editor of Faith and Leadership to talk about, she had, you know, caught wind of this Bible study that I have weekly with my father, who continues to be a, a minister. He's now, and rather than, he's not at a charismatic church anymore. He is now a solo pastor at a Southern Baptist church uh, in my hometown. And so I was feeling during the, this last election in particular that the divides are so deep between me and my father and then uh, sort of the, the folks we represent. You know, I live in a more urban community. He lives in a rural one. You know, I, I'm younger. I'm a millennial. He's a boomer. I'm progressive, you know, he's conservative. And so one of the challenges of a conversation like that is that, and as we've seen more and more, we're all operating these two sides that I'm sort of laying out here, these, these polarized parts of our community are operating with very different moral language and different sets of facts and data. And so I knew given that and the nature of my father in general, 
that if we were going to have any sort of substantive conversation across these divisions, that the Bible would have to be the facilitator. You know, the Bible would have to hold space for that. And so I would say that, you know, I stand by what I wrote in the piece, which is that the scripture has this space wide enough for us to encounter one another. Of course, that is because my father and I have a shared commitment to the scripture. I mean, I, I wouldn't necessarily assume that for everyone, but in the case of, of my father and I, and for most of the people who would read, you know, an article at Faith and Leadership, there's some sort of commitment to the biblical tradition. And the biblical tradition, I offered an invitation to use the biblical tradition as a way of opening up these questions. And there are many dimensions of that that I sort of touch on in, in the article, but, um, but I suffice it to say that I believe that the biblical text has space enough to, to hold the complexity of that encounter across difference. But I think that the challenge of the piece that I still continue to wrestle with is that I would never want to universalize this particular experience that I have not everyone who comes from a conservative tradition or that has conservative parents will find that encounter to be uh, generative or life-giving. Some days I question that for myself, but you know, for, for many folks, it could be not just not life-giving, it could actually be damaging. It could be re-traumatizing and subtly death-dealing even. And so I would never want to encourage anyone to undertake that. So you'll notice in the article, there are several caveats. You know, I'm like constantly pinning it back to the particularity of my experience and the, the ways that I felt that this invitation was merited for me and for my father, not for, for others necessarily. I'm not, you know, offering a Bible study as a panacea to our social ills. But all that being said, I do think that, you know, if we truly, and this is sort of where I was getting with when we were talking about curricula earlier, but if we really interrogate the biblical tradition and we take Jesus seriously in the ways that I think he wanted us to take him, I don't think Jesus is always so serious, but, but there are some things that are pretty, pretty important to him. If we take him seriously in those ways, if we take the text seriously as a resource for us ethically and civically and politically and morally, I believe that we have to reckon with this liberative prophetic message that Jesus brings. Uh, you know, we have to reckon with the good news that we've talked about. And, you know, I think that at this point, my father and I sort of leave the conversation with a, a deepened understanding of just how differently we approach the text. You know, he, he continues to have, and wouldn't mind me saying this at all, you know, a, a commitment to that personal relationship with Jesus Christ, that kind of narrative, and substitutionary atonement, meaning that, you know, Christ became a human in order to take on our sins and die on the cross as an exchange for you know, our, to, to bring hope to the hopeless um, by, by enduring the suffering that had to happen on the cross. And I just approached the scripture in a totally different way. But all that being said, I, I do think that it's not just a matter of, it's not just a matter of approach. 
I think that it's also a matter of reckoning with the reality of Scripture as it is. Luke 4 is significant. It's sometimes called the Nazareth Manifesto because in because that is where Jesus literally states, this is what I came to do. And it is a message of liberation. Matthew 25 is a culmination of Christ's teachings. It's the last teaching that he gives before going to the cross. And so, you know, these are not just scriptures taken out of context that, you know, I'm sort of proof texting. I think that they are at the heart, the very heart of the gospel as Christ understood it. And if we use that as our lens through which we understand all of the rest of it, you know, and we take seriously, you know, historical criticism, you know, we understand and literary criticism, we understand the various voices within scripture, the different genres that are employed, uh, the, the historical circumstances under which the scripture is written. I think that, and I've said this to my father and to other evangelicals, but I think that they shortchange the scripture. You know, they are the ones that that sort of trumpet their commitment to scripture. But if we only take it as the text that is handed to us without interrogating the context under which it was written, you know, the translation that underwent it, the genres that compose it, uh, we really don't have a full understanding of scripture. And so that's a long answer to that short question, but I would say that, you know, what I'm offering in that, in that article is a possible means of reconnecting or bridging the divides that we see that are polarizing our society within the biblical witness. But ultimately for me, that is rooted again in, in liberation and reckoning with the, with the centrality of that within the scriptural witness. Thinking about your queer identity and, you know, just LGBTQ plus rights in general, where do you see the sacred or sacred things in your approach to queerness and activism? That's a really great question. I, I'll answer it with a story, I think, that'll help me ground myself. I gathered with my youth group the morning after the shooting at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh a couple of years ago and was really at a loss for what to do. You know, the I knew knowing my youth were very, you know, very informed and particularly informed on issues of gun control, gun violence, very attentive to that matter. You know, and here we are, of course, this was a, an anti-Semitic and white supremacist attack, but here we were gathering in a religious space the next day, and a religious space that, you know, is, is very vocal about its support of, of queer folks and, you know, takes strong anti-racist stances publicly. And the next day they would have to go to school, you know, where they're constantly undergoing drills uh, for active shooters and the same schools that, you know, they're, they're seeing violently attacked in the same way that, that the synagogue was. And so I, the fear and the heartbreak was palpable. And I remember doing the one thing that I just thought to do, which was we have to have a vigil in this moment. You know, we have to have a candlelight vigil. At the time, at the moment, we, there were 11 deaths that we knew of 
And I think I gathered up 11 candles and we just lit them as a community and we prayed together. And it was really extraordinary to witness what happened in that space because, and by witness, I really mean feel. I mean, you know, if you had been standing outside looking in the window, you may not have gotten it, but being there, being present, being embodied in that space with those young people, it was incredible the ways that for me, as I was praying, when I started the prayer, it was a reflection on death and our mortality and the fragile nature of our lives and of our society and the violence and the trauma. And so the candles were a vigil. And by the end of the prayer, and there was another moment of silence, and we, I think in in the middle of this, they were given an opportunity to reflect on one commitment that they would make to make the world a better place. And so by the end of that prayer and our time together, it felt as if those candles that had been lit, you know, as a vigil were transformed suddenly into, and it was the same candles, of course, that they began to transform into a light that could guide our way forward into new possibility, into deeper understanding. And so I mentioned that because it was a, that was a sacred moment. And I think that if we are open to the fullness of our experience and the experience of our neighbor in the way that Christ has asked us to be, you know, we will be transformed. There is a shift. And that doesn't mean that, you know, everything's all right. We didn't leave that room having conquered death or or having rolled back white supremacy and anti-Semitism or having passed lit, you know, legislation for, for gun control. But we did leave more connected to one another in the midst of our suffering. The word compassion means to suffer with. And compassion was what defined Christ's ministry. You know, Jesus, when he fed the 5,000 in that famous tale, you know, he looked upon the people who had gathered there with compassion. Even in the midst, he was actually in the midst of his own grieving. He was trying to escape the crowd and his disciples in order to mourn the death of John the Baptist, who'd been traumatically, you know, I mean, had been just uh, executed summarily, and it was traumatic for Jesus. But even in the midst of his mourning, he opened himself through compassion to the suffering of others. And so, you know, I do see this as sacred work. It's holy work. And by that, I mean, it's set apart. It's set apart from the ways that we're usually told to approach these situations, you know, suffer in silence or, you know, keep in, you know, watch out for me and my own and not really concern myself with, with another. Ironically, the, the wider, you know, the more we break our hearts open, the more wholeness we find in connection with each other. And so I do believe that this work is, you know, it can often, and I think that this chafes my father, you know, it often sounds so political and so structural and even sometimes intellectual, you know, when I go around talking about 
this policy and that. But ultimately, what I'm asking of people is to be open to the heartbreak of others, to open themselves to the possibility of solidarity with another, to open ourselves to the possibility that we are actually tied to one another, that our liberation is bound up in one another, and that if we do that, I do believe that, you know, we can transform lights lit in vigil to lights lit that will chart a course forward. And my last question for you, Ian, we kind of talked a little bit about interlocking systems of oppression earlier, but when we think about queer folk, we often think about white, gay, cis, Western men. How, as religious practitioners or queer people of faith, do you think we move forward on creating an approach to religion and sexuality that accounts for networks of power that exist in gender and race and socioeconomic status and other identities at the intersection of sexuality? That's a great question. I, I think that in part, you know, it goes back to some of what I mentioned earlier about reframing our understanding of the work that we're called to do. We really are not, you know, this, this is not a, a religious club for gay marriage. We're called to something much deeper than that, to be attentive to a, a real spiritual battle. You know, this goes back to my charismatic roots again, you know, the spiritual warfare language, which I understandably a lot of folks in my more progressive circles don't embrace, but I embrace it because we're reminded in scripture that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And I believe that there are principalities and powers that are mutually informing, that are ultimately rooted in the same hellish outcomes for so many among us. You cannot talk about queerness without talking about white supremacy you cannot talk about immigration reform without talking about uh, environmental degradation and you know the systems of war that drive people to the desperation the desperate need to to leave their home for another all of these challenges before us are interlocking and i think that one of the beautiful things about religious language principalities and powers and that sort of thing that I mentioned earlier is that it really gives us a lot of clarity about, you know, whose side we're on and whose side we're not on. Any of those forces that are death dealing are antithetical to the liberation that Jesus talked about. You know, this is the same Christ who says in John that he came to bring life and life more abundant. And that was over and against a thief that comes to steal, kill, and destroy. There are forces in the world that are conspiring for death. And what we're looking for, I think, uh, you know, what we're called to, to seek out as Christians is not a life raft for a few of us. White gay men, you know, white lesbian women, these sort of moving into a kind of homonormativity as a church is not our calling. We're called to be attentive to the ways that all of our neighbors, and not just all of our neighbors, but with particular emphasis on those who are most vulnerable. Jesus, you know, I mean, the story of the lost sheep, right? 
you leave the 99 to go look for the one, the one that is most vulnerable. And so I, I think that we have to have a clear sense of what our commitment is. Again, I think that's something I kind of mentioned in the curricula conversation, but we're on the side of life. We're on the side of liberation. We're on the side of dismantling oppressive systems, which means that we are not on the side of death dealing, whatever form it takes. And we're not going to abandon one issue in order to you know, count, pat ourselves on the back for another or count ourselves victors in one battle without understanding that there really is a spiritual war at the end of the day that is conspiring for, for the benefit of a few at the expense of many. And we have to be attentive to, to the many different ways that folks experience exploitation. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I just think that that is the, the root of our calling and it will manifest in, you know, in different ways, in different times, in different circumstances, but we have to always and ever be attentive to where the spirit is drawing our attention. And because the least of these might look different in one conversation versus another, but we still have to be attentive to them nonetheless. Ian, thank you so much for your time.